This is Upfront Tech. I'm Brian Edwards Teeker. That is the sound of the Uber app telling a driver that somebody wants a ride. Hit a button to accept. The app pops up directions. And the ride is on. Now, this system is simple, it is useful, and for now, it is subsidized. Uber is losing billions of dollars a year as it pursues market share over profitability. And the growth of platforms like Uber and Lyft and the lesser knowns has put strain on everything from congested city streets to public transit agencies that are losing fares. The question we're going to tackle this segment is, how is that changing the way our cities work, and what should we do about it? Joined in studio by Stuart Cohen. He is executive director of the transportation and land use advocacy organization Transform. He co-authored the recent report, A Framework for Equity in New Mobility. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So Uber is easy. Uber is quick. Uber is cheap. Why should I care about anything else? Well, it's now being discovered that in San Francisco and New York and likely in other cities, Uber and Lyft are starting to congest the streets doing a significant number of trips, especially to downtown. That means if you're on public transit, you might be going slower. Okay, so if you're looking like purely at the efficiency of the transportation system, there's clearly a benefit to having cars filled instead of having solo drivers on the road. But it's a negative if those cars are competing with buses that move a lot more people in a lot less road space. What's the evidence for uh, car-sharing platforms poaching ridership from mass transit agencies like Muni? Sifting through the reports and the data is very difficult. There was a Chronicle headline today that was totally off, a report by Rocky Mountain Institute that had horrible methodology that basically said Lyft is reducing vehicle travel overall. Basically, didn't assume that anybody that was taking Lyft would have been taking transit. And instead, I refer back to a report put out by UC Davis in October. It was a survey of 7,000 people in the seven biggest cities who take these TNCs. And what it found is that 49 to 61%, depending on the city, of those trips either would not have been made at all. People definitely take more trips because they're so easy or they would have been made by walking, biking, or transit. So that's some pretty damning evidence that these are probably generating additional vehicle trips. In terms of their interaction with transit, it's complicated. They are definitely poaching trips from bus and light rail, which are usually used for short trips, often of one to three miles. What they're finding, though, is that these users actually increase their rail access Because with rail, you're often going pretty far distances, but often there's an access problem. You know, it's a mile and a half to the rail station, or there's no parking left at the BART stations. And so they actually think that there might even be a 3% or so in this study increase in rail use amongst these users. Of course, they have an easier time getting to or from rail. Now, what that doesn't take into account is that we are definitely seeing buses slow up. We're seeing streets get more clogged, and that you know, is going to lead to a, an overall reduction in bus use. And we've seen that across the country, except in Austin and Seattle, a couple of cities that are really doing right by their system and getting priority lanes for buses. We are seeing a big drop in bus use throughout the country. 
Now, there are places that are actually trying to replace some of their mass transit with these, you call them TNCs, that's transportation network companies. In other words, uh, why pay for a whole big expensive bus with one or two people on it? We'll just pay their lift fares. Yeah, we're seeing that all over the country here in the East Bay. Uh, Dublin was the first one to do it. And they replaced two zones where they got rid of their bus service. And instead, you can get a lift ride that's subsidized. So it's either um, $3 or $5. Um, and, you know, these were buses. This is one of those really complicated policy points. These were buses that were very poorly used, sometimes having just five riders per hour midday. Um, so very inefficient, even from an environmental perspective, to have them running. Yet we really feel like from a social equity perspective, this was a poorly done experiment. Somebody who has had a, a pass on that system in the uh, Tri-Valley pays $45 a month for their bus pass. So, you know, whether it was youth or others who might have fully depended on that for that trip, that was their entire transportation cost potentially. Now, if you want to do a round trip uh, for $10 a day on Lyft just to get to your transit station, either the Dublin Pleasanton BART or the buses that go from there, you then have to spend about $200 on uh, Uber or Lyft plus your bus pass. So it could quintuple the cost. They didn't do a low-income analysis. They didn't do a kind of ridership survey and, and identifying those, those folks. So we need to, as these experiments happen and they're going to happen more and more, we need to make sure that low-income commuters are able to afford it and are able to have the technology to access it. One of the other things you cite in your report is some evidence of discrimination on the platforms, which leapt out at me because I've often heard this held up as an artifact of the personally hailed cab system, right? Is the yellow cab in New York passing by the black person who's trying to get a ride and Uber and Lyft promoted as the solution to it? How does discrimination work on platforms? Well, so there was a, a study done uh, and it looked at Uber and Lyft separately uh, and found that uh, when when those drivers get to choose to take someone, uh, they've got to, you know, you've got that little time when it says searching for drivers, searching for drivers, and they've got to kind of accept that trip. They found that Uber drivers were kind of unaccepting trips or canceling them or sometimes not taking them, but that it was taking a much longer time for somebody with a very foreign sounding or, you know, often African American name than with kind of names that might be associated with white people. Oh, it's because the apps let the drivers see the names. Yeah, you actually accept. get to see the name and very often the face of the people, which makes it much easier uh -huh. uh, to find them when they're standing on a crowded street corner. They did not find similar situation with Lyft. I mean, it seems like the other discrimination problem might be more structural. The fares are going to be higher in some place like downtown San Francisco, where people using the service are affluent than in more peripheral areas of the city, like the Southeast, where people might have great need for mobility, but not great means to pay. Does that produce more of a service gap than you might have with a centrally planned mass transit system? This is a complicated question because one of the things that we may see, and I think we're starting to see little bits of, is the convenience of these TNCs start to replace 
personal vehicles. So yeah. in this UC Davis study, about 9% of people were able to give up personal vehicles. And in those situations, and one might assume that some of those are people who are low income and who owning a vehicle was a high percentage of their income, you know, maybe they can find savings while still finding that critical access to opportunities that they need. But yes, since there's no public subsidy for it, since these are just totally private sector driven, it is essentially going to be something that's going to be more available to people that are affluent. It also raises the question, like, why do it through private companies at all? The, the technology itself for hailing rides through a mobile phone is not magic. It is not prohibitively expensive to develop. There are many companies that have done it. Why shouldn't a city like San Francisco just ban Uber and Lyft and set up a municipal ride hailing platform that's run by its transportation authority? Well, that's uh, certainly an intriguing idea and one that essentially some of these agencies are looking into. And so AC Transit has a program called AC Transit Flex that uses the on-demand app-based approach and is looking to eliminate some of their really low-use rides in, in places like Fremont and replace it with kind of this on-demand shuttle service and have that be publicly subsidized and so it's affordable and it gets around some of those issues you described and it would most likely have many more riders so get away from the congestion. It's been interesting to watch what was you know, a microcosm of this concept in what I kind of call the airport wars, where a lot of airports at first didn't allow Uber and Lyft, and sometimes not to do just pickups. Some even tried to stop drop-offs. And ultimately, it was just like a wave that washed over uh, the airports. And, and I don't, I haven't been to any lately that disallow it just because of the sheer convenience of it. Uh, you know, it just created this public demand. One of the things that Uber and Lyft have going, of course, over even flywheel and the taxis is price. Mm. And, you know, the price is low, both because it's subsidized by venture capital and they're both, you know, they're losing money and trying to get market share um, and they're waiting for the autonomy, right? So they're going to keep subsidizing it until autonomous vehicles come and then they'll be able to reduce price by getting rid of the driver. But the second reason is really a transportation efficiency reason, which is after somebody might take me or you to the Oakland airport, they then get on right there and look for the next person to pick up who very well might be at the Oakland airport or you know somewhere at the Coliseum. When a taxi driver from Berkeley you know, takes me to the Oakland airport, their next trip is almost definitely gonna be just coming back solo to Berkeley. So what's on the horizon? Downtown San Francisco, if we take that as a case study, um, right now, according to the city statistics, about a quarter of trips in downtown during rush hour are Uber, Lyft, or a company like one of those two. When driverless cars hit the system, to what extent will we expect the scale to change? Yeah, you know, there's the potential for chaos. I mean, we already see incredible gridlock in downtown San Francisco, and you could start to see that replicated in other places. So. When autonomous vehicles hit, and we believe that Uber and Lyft will be amongst the first to have fleets of vehicles roaming the streets, uh, they both have experiments that have started in different cities with driverless vehicles and taxis that are essentially starting up right now. When they get rid of the driver, the price will drop 60%, maybe 70%. 
and we will see a flood of these vehicles. It will really start to mess with bus transit because it will both slow it down and be so price competitive. And so I think what San Francisco and other cities are starting to think about and need to act quickly on is we need to have many more lanes that are just high occupancy vehicle lanes. And we're going to do, have to do everything that we can to push these companies to not be providing solo trips. And if they are solo trips in a congested downtown at rush hour, they should be incredibly expensive. They should be taxed. Uh, and that tax should be going to help pay for bus-only lanes and public transit and other things. So it's a good note to set up our next guest, Stuart Cohen. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Stuart Cohen is executive director of Transform. That's a transportation and land use advocacy organization. He co-authored the recent report, A Framework for Equity in New Mobility. According to figures from San Francisco, on a typical weekday, companies like Uber and Lyft account for 570,000 vehicle miles logged on city streets. During rush hour in downtown, they account for roughly a quarter of all traffic. And survey research from UC Davis suggests that a lot of that traffic would not exist if it were not for those companies. Most of the people using them would otherwise be on foot, on bike, or on transit, or not taking a trip at all. All of which seems a little bit unfair when you consider that the streets that the companies are making billions by pouring traffic onto are public, and that these services are also starving transit systems of the rider fares they need to balance their budgets. Our next guest has a proposal for fixing that. Charge them. Anthony Flint is a veteran journalist, a fellow at the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, and the author of several books on battles over the shape of cities. The article that caught our attention is something he wrote for City Lab. It's entitled, Uber and Lyft Should Pay for the Streets. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me. So around here, at least, we've had a kind of anything-goes approach to regulating companies like Uber and Lyft. Policy wonks call them transportation network companies. How are other cities handling them? Well, all around the world, you've seen different reactions uh, in London, in the Netherlands, and in France, where city governments and regulators haven't been quite so open-door or accommodating. And part of that is, of course, uh, has to do with uh, the existing taxi fleets and their political influence. But other cities are uh, taking a look at this in just the way that you hinted at, which was, all right, we'll let you operate, but we're going to change some of the rules of the game here and uh, indeed charge you for the use of the public asset, which is, which is the streets. So we have kind of a policy framework for doing that. It's the gas tax in California or the toll system on bridges. The presumption is if you're putting a car on the road, you're contributing to the need for maintenance. How would it work for a company that's like booking other people's cars? The place that I looked at in the City Lab piece was uh, Sao Paulo in Brazil, and they went through uh, some fights over Uber and Lyft and other ride hailing services there in Brazil. 
really been wrestling with it. The national government uh, was considering some some tougher uh, regulations. Um, but Sao Paulo's approach, I think, was interesting because they are looking at their public assets and figuring out what they can actually charge for. They're doing this in another respect in terms of urban development uh, through something called value capture. But it's really a fresh start about the interaction of the private sector and cities and public assets. So what they did in Sao Paulo, which, by the way, they started out with the city council uh, banning Uber and Lyft, and then cooler heads prevailed, and there was a compromise. And it was to uh, charge the companies for uh, the use of streets per mile. And they do it according to a sliding scale. There's a little bit more of a charge if the ride is in the city center, for example, if it's during peak hours, if there's only one passenger. And it's less if there's more passengers uh, or if it's a ride in underserved areas, if it's a ride in an all-electric vehicle. So there are various ways that you can kind of work in other policy objectives through the sliding scale of these charges. And they're already estimated to bring in $50 million per year, and that gets poured back into uh, infrastructure and transit and other transportation needs in the city of Sao Paulo. I mean, the hilarious thing is I can imagine the policy fight at a city government level right now if those companies followed the same playbook that Airbnb did when the city started regulating them. The first thing they would cry is we couldn't possibly share the data with you that you'd need to enforce these regulations without creating huge privacy concerns for our users. Yes, and that's been a, that's been a big uh, point of contention. A version of that argument was indeed posed. Uh, but they worked it out with the city of Sao Paulo, where uh, they not only collect that data, but allow it to be analyzed to figure out various transportation factors that are at work in this city, which is a city of 20 million people. So they were able to negotiate that, but it does suggest that there are people in government that are going to have access to where people went on a given day from point A to point B. But I think the conclusion was that that was fairly harmless data. It, it doesn't reveal any you know, personal information, but just rather the, uh, the trips and the patterns and the peak times for, for congestion. You connect the idea of charging for the use of the streets back to an economic tradition that started in the 19th century with someone named Henry George. What is that connection? Well, Henry George was a political economist and very popular at the end of the 19th century. He wrote a book called Progress and Poverty. His basic idea was that, look, private real estate developers are taking advantage of all kinds of public investments and in infrastructure and making money off of it because their values, their property values increase. So uh, Henry George had the idea that uh, cities should recover some of that increase in value through what's known these days as land-based financing or value capture. And 
if you just take it at a high level, a conceptual level, Sao Paulo is doing something similar. And by the way, Sao Paulo is a leader in value capture, uh, where developers have to uh, pay for building in a uh, really good location, like near a transit station, for example. And that money gets plowed back into urban development. But Sao Paulo has uh, taken this concept and and just stepped back and said, wait a minute, Uber and Lyft are, are making money off of using our streets, so we're going to charge them for the, for the use of our public assets created by the taxpayers. There's a harder argument against these companies. We interviewed a gentleman who made the case that since Uber in particular has racked up such a incredible history of law-breaking in the cities where it operates by not using commercial licenses, by not using vehicles that have commercial insurance, that they should just be put out of business. They should be banned or fined out of existence. What's the case for keeping the companies operating at all? Well, in Sao Paulo, uh, there were actually a couple of other local ride-sharing services, and, and they were clamoring to to get in on this action. Of course, Uber and Lyft are, are at the top of the heap, uh, but I think that was a factor that uh, wasn't just Uber and Lyft. There were local companies, and uh, I think there was a recognition that the market has spoken, certainly convenient, and um, it was a matter of figuring out what, what the best policy and, and regulatory framework should be for what is clearly the future of mobility in cities. One issue with looking at the transportation network companies as a a substitute for transit systems is accessibility. Their fleets don't uh, include vehicles that can handle someone in a wheelchair. Yes, and what they tried uh, again in Sao Paulo to to get at that was uh, to reduce the charge uh, for the use of city streets uh, for uh, handicap accessible vehicles, and for uh, some other things like uh, underserved areas or areas at the periphery rather than where arguably more affluent people need to get around in the city center. So there are ways to, um, I think, lay out some incentives um, uh, and also, uh, who knows, the future may see uh, some regulations where a certain percentage of vehicles do need to be accessible. Is this something where, where city planners in places like Sao Paulo are looking at uh, transportation network companies, ride-sharing companies, as a solution to the final leg problem of mass transit, like they're what get you from the bus stop home, or where they're looking at it as a substitute for mass transit, just get rid of the bus altogether? One wonders uh, here in the U.S. and around the world what uh, what the future is, for example, for uh, traditional city buses. W- one can imagine uh, some kind of hybrid of uh, ride-hailing uh, approach uh, and using uh, technology that will ultimately you know, replace that you know the old number one bus that uh, comes down Massachusetts Avenue or wherever it might be and is, uh, and is late and nobody knows if it's going to actually come. And uh, I, I think you see city planners embracing technology uh, and uh, seeking to uh, complement 
the transportation system uh, with these companies. There's kind of like a, a unease I have with that trend. And it might have to do with my upbringing in New York, but in New York on mass transit, it's one of the public spaces where stockbrokers and janitors are going to be in the same car. <laughs> maybe, maybe like studiously ignoring each other, but at least have a shared experience in a common part of the city. If everybody's in their own car, it just feels like we're even more atomized than we already are as a society. Yes, you're absolutely right. And, and uh, transit is a place where you, you get that kind of mixing. It's very practical. And the New York system is, is uh, fantastic. And it, it is in Paris and, and elsewhere. I, I think what you're going to see is even more kind of hand-wringing and uh, concern uh, as we get into autonomous vehicles and their availability, where autonomous vehicles would be part of an Uber fleet, for example. And I know there's a lot of concern in the, in the transportation policy world about equity, about making sure that the self-driving cars are, are not only uh, for the rich and uh, that we can't leave the transit-riding public behind as we witness these incredible technological changes. All right. Anthony Flint, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Anthony Flint is a veteran journalist, a fellow at the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, and the author of several books on battles over the shape of cities. His recent article in City Lab is entitled, Uber and Lyft Should Pay for the Streets. That does it for this edition of Upfront Tech. If you like what you're hearing, help us out. Rate and review us in whatever app you use to listen. It really helps us get the word out. Upfront Tech is produced and hosted by me, Brian edwards Teeker, with help from Lucy Kang. We've been aiming to get an episode up every Friday. We have also been failing miserably. But what we do do is make sure episodes go up here before they go to the airwaves. So if you subscribe, you are always getting the latest. If you just found this, especially if you live in the Bay Area, you might also like the daily show that we produce at KPFA. It's called Upfront, No Tech. We're on live weekday mornings from 7 to 9 a.m. Pacific, streaming at kpfa.org, or over the terrestrial airwaves at 94.1 FM. We also love to hear what you think. Send email to upfront at kpfa.org.